1: Welcome to episode 56, I do hope you're well. Sorry for the tardiness of this episode, my children are on school holidays, and so finding a peaceful moment to record this has been near impossible. Anyway, back now, I raise my beer to you. Here is my chink. In fact, let's have a second beer. Which one shall I have?
2: Shafer one beer to have when you're happy. Than more than
1: one... This is a very sexy song. Kinda of feel like stripping off behind a giant feather. In a... you
3: more... Take it off. Shaper, the one deer to have when you're having more
4: than
1: one. Okay, I'm actually naked now, which is pretty much standard for me when I've had two beers.
5: My mother thanks you. My father thanks you. My sister thanks you. And I assure
6: you, I thank you.
1: So I have some thank yous to do this week. First one goes to Dan Gale, who sent a donation to the shows. A hard and fast thank you. And a very fiery Canterbury shoots from my hand to yours. Likewise, Michael Tate gets a thank you and a Canterbury for his donation, Michael Hadouken. And to Mr. Ivan Smith, who felt the need to follow their leads and contribute to the upkeep. Thank you, Mr. Smith. And shout down on this to the gorgeous Miss Helen Govier, who caused this occurrence to occurify on BBC Radio's IPM show.
0: Anyway, we've had an email from a listener, Helen Govier, and uh, she wants me to recommend more UK podcasts. Noted, Helen. Noted. Um, and as such, I will share your recommendation with the IPM gang. Dear IPM, I've enjoyed listening to your episodes about podcasting, but have noticed that you haven't mentioned many British podcasts. In the light of this, I would like to recommend that you take a glance at two podcasts produced and presented by Adam Roche. Attaboy Clarence and The Secret History of Hollywood both discuss the golden age of cinema. Attaboy presents a light, funny and conversational pod offering reviews of several films. They also include old-time radio plays, often film adaptations featuring golden age stars. The Secret History is more traditional documentary. Episodes are vastly informative, funny and heartbreaking. On more than one occasion, I have been left crying and laughing at the same time. My favourite episode, Sex and Monochrome, discusses the development of censorship and the use and abuse of women in early cinema with enormous feeling, respect and depth. These are independent podcasts and the presenter had no previous radio experience, but the quality is exceptional. If truth be told, I may be a touch enamoured with Mr Roche, but could be considered a biased witness. I do, however, think fellow Radio Ford listeners would really appreciate his storytelling style, and I am happy to share him. And she's included the address, which is www.attaboyclarence.com. Now, I haven't had a chance to listen to these yet, although I did check out the website. And I listened to the first couple of minutes um, of episode 53, The French Girl, and it had me smiling within like the first minute. Um so I will definitely return to it. It sounds really good fun. Thank you, Helen.
1: No, thank you, Helen. And I think you know what this means. Helen Govier. You know, I think you could have been a contender.
3: You don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a
6: contender. <laughs>
2: You can take Salem out of the country, but
1: Hello? You can take the country out of
7: Salem You can take Salem out of the country,
1: but I could what? You can take the country out of Salem Okay, thanks for that
7: (laughs)
2: You can't take the country
1: out of Salem. You can take Salem out of the country's boat. Okay, thank you. That's great advice. Maybe you have a question. Well, throw it into the question pot. Strangely, there is no next line. Well, maybe I'll read your question. Out on this show, or maybe not. Now, here's someone with a handbell. The Cheek of Ian from Aberystwyth, who this week threw not just one, but three questions into the question pot, clank, 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 which were, number one, are there any books you use to research for your secret history podcasts? The question here should be, are there any books I don't use to research for my secret history podcasts? Seriously, hundreds of things. Let me know which show you mean specifically, and I'll narrow it down to the good ones for you. Number two, do you have to mentally switch between your more comical attaboy voice to your more serious secret history one? Yes, I do. I basically watch Sophie's Choice and Schindler's List on a loop before I record a secret history show to create that sober mood. To be honest, Ian, it sounds as though I've just read the whole thing straight off when you listen to a secret history. The fact is that so many hours of me trying to get the right tone end up on the cutting room floor, so to speak. A lot of editing. Number three, what happened to the Muffin Man? Surely he should have his own movie. Well, I believe he went to live in Drury Lane. Do you know him? On to a question from Santi Feel who asks, which underrated slash little-known movie do you think should become a proper classic? Sandy, Sandy, Sandy. Oh, Sandy, 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 I think we all know the answer to that particular question, don't we? Everybody?
2: Oh, you're not, you can't be. Go on,
1: would say, the Brighton Strangler. <laughs> and but apart from that particular masterpiece, I do think Obsession... The 1949 film starring Sally Gray is a true classic that not many people seem to know about. That one definitely deserves to be more widely seen. The last question today from Edward D'Agostino, who writes, Hi Adam, you're the best. No, you are, Edward. How did audience react in theatres when watching a Marx Brothers movie? Did they laugh out loud like one does for an Austin Powers movie? Or was it more like laughing at a Woody Allen movie? I find them more of an intellectual laugh, more than a side-splitting laugh from Ed. Well, Ed, obviously I wasn't around in those days, so I can't actually say for sure. And I'm pretty certain that different audiences reacted to films in different ways. But having read reviews from the period where critics describe the audience as losing control of their bodily functions in hysterics. You get the feeling that they were definitely laughing out loud. Have you ever seen Alfred Hitchcock's Sabotage? Well, if you haven't, I strongly urge you to watch the scene in which Mrs Verloc walks through the cinema while Disney's Who Killed Cock Robin is playing on the screen. The audience are absolutely losing their minds. And it always strikes me when I see it that movie audiences, especially during the 1930s, were so nascent and so utterly willing to surrender themselves, heart and soul, to the screen. They screamed at Frankenstein and they swooned to Clark Gable and they danced to Fred and Ginger. So it's entirely reasonable to think that they were roaring in laughter at the Marx Brothers. Because if they can make the cynical moviegoers of today break down into fits of laughter, then imagine what they were doing to people back then. So throw your flipping questions into the shiny question pot. You might hear your question next time. So until then, get your thinky cap on for the question pot. Okay, that's the end Okay, I am ridiculously excited about this week's movie reviews You know, sometimes when you have those weeks where you just watch nothing but good stuff Well, that, I am pleased to say is this week in my life despite the fact that the movies I chose to review both follow the theme of CURSES <laughs> So let's kick off this accursed week with a brilliant British film from 1957 entitled Curse of the Demon, which some of you may know as Night of the Demon, but for the purposes of this show, and so that it fits thematically, we will hereby address it as Curse of the Demon. Here is a clip. It
6: has been written since the beginning of time, even unto these ancient stones, that evil supernatural creatures exist in a world of darkness
3: and it is also said
6: man using the magic power of the ancient runic symbols can call forth these powers of darkness
4: the
3: demons of hell Men have feared and worshipped these creatures. The practice of witchcraft, the cults of evil, have endured and exist to this day.
1: This is based on the M. R. James story, Casting the Runes, and tells the story of an American doctor, John Holden, who's come to England to help in an investigation into the activities of satanic cult leader Julian Carswell. The man heading the investigation, Professor Harrington, has recently been found dead in suspicious circumstances, and Holden determines to carry on with the investigation, suspecting that Carswell may have had something to do with the death, but as he begins to dig deeper, it soon becomes clear that Harrington's death was no simple murder, but a diabolical execution carried out by not a mere mortal, but an agent of hell itself. A dark, demonic spirit who seems to have chosen Holden as its next victim.
3: I see you practice white magic as well as black. Oh, yes. I don't think it'd be too amusing for the youngsters if I conjured up a demon from hell for them. Or for myself, for that matter. As we're not protected by the magic circle, we'd both of us be torn to shreds. And you'd spoil the party. You're so right. But how to prove my point?
1: A horror story then, but a very different tale to the ones that circled around it during the 1950s. While the rest of horror cinema was more concerned with atomic accidents and extraterrestrial visitors, Curse of the Demon was happy to plant its flag in rural Britain and let the chills grow slowly. Which, as any fans of M.R. James will know, was practically his calling card. It's a very peculiar film with not many scares, but there is a genuine air of uneasy dread around the whole thing. A sort of clammy terror that creeps in at the edges of the screen. It's almost hard to describe. It's a very scary film, but not because it shocks you into being scared. It's more the sense of malevolent tension you get while looking down a dark passageway expecting something to emerge in the distance or the sight of a piece of paper suddenly coming to life in the middle of a drawing room. It's modern life with a supernatural kink, and it really gets under your skin.
3: Oh, why did you drop the poker? It's red hot. Which isn't, you know. Oh, my boy, you're as pale as death. There was something in here. Oh, nothing to worry you. Just a minor demon, I said, to protect the room. Nothing like the real thing when you meet it. It may have been minor, but it had claws and teeth. Oh, claws and teeth. Did you bite the man? Oh, shame. I don't keep you as a watch cat. I left the book in full sight for him. His name's Grimalkin. A very fashionable name for English cats in the Middle Ages. They were used in witchcraft, you know. It was not that cat. Oh, yes, it was. You must have awakened him. You shouldn't have. The time of the full moon when cats wander and witches dance. Oh, yes, they do dance. I've seen them.
1: Dane Andrews stars as Holden and he begins the film as a loudmouth cynic who doesn't believe in any of this nonsense, but by the end, he's most definitely a convert. The juiciest character in the film, though, is Carswell the Satanist, played with absolute relish by Niall McGuinness, who really hams it up as this smug, upper-class devil worshipper. The thing is, you partly root for the guy. I mean, he dresses up as a clown and entertains children at a garden party, and he seems so terribly polite and welcoming. But during the film's quieter moments, you see that there is real malice behind the smile and that despite his buffoonish appearance, he is a man who's most definitely touched by evil. It's a marvellous performance. The man responsible for crafting such an eerie screenplay was none other than Charles Bennett, the man who co-wrote so many of Alfred Hitchcock's earlier British successes. So it's little wonder that the script here is so meticulously planned out. And the film itself is directed by Jacques Tourneur, a master of noir horror, most famous, of course, for Cat People and The Leopard Man and his other work with Val Luton. Well, this is right up there with his earlier work in terms of quality. Tourneur was an incredibly talented man and really deserves a place in the pantheon of all-time great horror directors, in my opinion. The only criticism I have of the film is the same one that Pretty much everyone has when they've watched it. The Monster It is bloody appalling, and it definitely ruins what should have been a masterpiece. It's a rubber monstrosity that looks something between a rejected Godzilla Muppet prototype and a plastic bull terrier. Jacques Tourneur and Charles Bennett were both set on not featuring a creature at all, and instead using implied horror, which would have been perfect but they were overruled by the film's producer Hal Chester who insisted on putting a monster in there which really ruined what should have been a flawless movie. In fact, Charles Bennett was so upset when he saw the finished film that he famously said, If Chester walked up my driveway right now, I'd shoot him dead. (laughs) The special effects were directed by a man called S.D. Onions. Never trust your monster to a man called Mr. Onions. Anyway, if you can see past the god-awful monster, then you'll find a truly unsettling noir horror that will stay with you for a very long time indeed. The second film to tell you about this week is one of my favourite films ever, and yet so many people tend to write it off as nothing but a sequel, and an inferior sequel at that. This is Curse of the Cat People, one of the most bizarre, outlandish, unorthodox sequels of all time. Of course, you will more than likely be familiar with Val Luton's horror classic Cat People from 1942. The story of a Serbian girl named Irena who falls in love with an American named Oliver. But as their romance blossoms, Oliver begins to notice strange things about Irena. Namely, her obsession with cats and of the terrible legends that surround her homeland, that of the Cat People, cursed individuals who literally turn into cats when they're sexually aroused and devour those closest to them. Well, Cat People ends with Irena choosing to sacrifice herself rather than hurt Oliver, and Oliver finds love with a coworker. Obviously, there's more to the film than just that. It's a brilliantly chilling movie with some dazzling invention. Well, so successful was the film that RKO immediately instructed its producer, Val Luton, to begin work on a sequel, even giving him a title to use, Curse of the Cat People. Weirdly, RKO did this quite often. They came up with a title and then they built a film around it. Anyway, in this case, Luton was given Curse of the Cat People and instructed to come up with a sequel. What he ended up making was one of the most perplexing, enchantingly peculiar films of the 1940s. Now, you
6: run along and find the other children.
7: I wanted to talk to you. I wanted to tell you about the other children.
1: Can't you tell me later?
7: I didn't play with them. They wouldn't play with me.
6: What do you mean you didn't play with the other children?
7: They wouldn't play with me on account of the birthday party.
6: Because you didn't ask them. Well, I don't blame them for being angry. Why didn't you explain what happened?
7: They ran away.
6: Why'd you run after
7: them? I did. I came to an old dark house and a voice called to me, a lovely sweet voice.
1: The story picks up a few years after the events of Cat People. Oliver has married his co-worker Alice and they've moved into sleepy suburban life and they're raising their daughter, Amy, a shy introverted child who has trouble making friends and who spends much of her time retreating into her own imagination to play. Oliver and Alice become increasingly concerned with Amy's behaviour and encourage her to join the real world whenever possible. But things are made even more complicated by the arrival of a strange lady that only Amy can see. A beautiful Serbian lady named Irena, who becomes her imaginary best friend.
7: But you must promise never to tell anyone about me. Not even Daddy or Mommy? No. No. This must be a friendship that only we shall have, you and I, Amy and her friend. Oh, I like the sound of that, Amy
1: and her friend. To further complicate matters, Amy also strikes up a friendship of sorts with the family's neighbour, a reclusive old woman named Julia who believes that her daughter Barbara is an imposter. As Amy and the old woman grow closer, Barbara's feelings of jealousy towards the child soon begin to take on a murderous edge. Such a difficult film to categorise. If RKO were to be believed, then this was an out-and-out horror sequel. Their posters for the film carried the taglines The Black Menace Creeps Again and The Beast Woman Stalks the Night Anew. But while it is officially a sequel to Cat People... There aren't actually any cat people in the film. Instead, it's a film all about the perils of childhood and maturity and fantasy versus reality. It's a film about parents and their children and how it can be dangerous to ask them to grow up too soon. It's a film about the boundless wonderlands of a child's imagination. It's a fairy tale in which an innocent soul wanders into a shadowy castle, urged on by the guiding voice of a fairy godmother. It's all of these things, and it's so much more. It's a startlingly original piece of work. Just don't go in expecting more cat people. And that, I think, is why so many people are disappointed with it because that's exactly how it was sold to them. Even the title proclaims it to be so. But do you know what? If it wasn't a Cat People sequel, I don't think I'd love it as much. I think it needs to be a film populated by the same characters because it automatically lends an air of mythology to the film. Irena the Monster from the first film is now the ghostly imaginary best friend to the daughter of her husband. It's a very creepy concept, but it's also rather beautiful.
7: Daddy! Yes, Amy? Why, Daddy, you know my friend too.
6: You couldn't know this woman. She died before you were born. Why did you call her your friend? Answer me, Amy. Why did you call her your friend?
7: Because she is my friend.
0: Ollie, please, let's not go on with this. The child's trembling. We've
6: got to go on. Amy. All this time you've let your mother and father think that you've forgotten that old dream life of yours. Now we find you've only kept it secret.
7: It isn't a secret. She plays with me. She plays with me in the garden all the time. Right out there in the garden. She does.
6: In the garden? Would she be there now?
7: She's there whenever I call her.
1: It was directed by Robert Wise, the man who would go on to direct The Haunting and The Sound of Music. Well, this was the film... Where he began his long and distinguished directing career, but in all honesty, this film has Val Luton's fingerprints, or should I say, paw prints, on every single frame. The small anecdotal moments in the film, the dark house on the street, the birthday invitations, the fact that the hero of the film is a shy, isolated child, these are all elements that Luton drew on from his own life. And he poured it all into this remarkable film which was saddled with a schlocky title and sent out to cinemas where audiences hungry for more cat monsters were instead treated to a tale of fantasy and adolescence. It's not surprising that the film bombed, but thankfully it has since been reappraised by more receptive critics who all seem to agree that it's a masterpiece. I am firmly in that camp. In fact, dare I say it out loud? I prefer it to the original Cat People. Although they are both spellbinding movies, I find myself haunted more by the curse of the Cat People and its eerie imagery than I do by the straight-up horror of the original. Anyway, if you haven't seen it, do treat yourselves to it. You will be surprised at how radically different it is to the film you're expecting. Onto some radio for you then. Well, Curse of the Cat People was never adapted for radio, more's the pity. And neither was Curse of the Demon. But the story upon which Curse of the Demon was based, M.R. James' classic chiller casting the runes, was adapted for the very well-respected show Escape, which ran from 1947 to 1954, and thrilled radio audiences with tales of high adventure. It therefore gives me great pleasure to be able to deposit you in Escape's very capable hands for half an hour of creeping suspense. I will see you afterwards. Had a hard day at the office?
3: Backache from bending over a hot stove all day? Want to get
6: away from it all? We offer you Escape! <laughs> It
3: is midnight, and you are alone. Suddenly the room is plunged into darkness. You sit frozen with terror because something is there behind you. Something you feared would come. Something from which you must escape.
6: Escape, produced and
4: directed by William N. Robeson, and carefully plotted to free you from the four walls of today
3: for a half hour of high adventure. <laughs> Tonight, we escaped to London, and a world made strange and terrifying by the workings of an ancient barbaric curse, as Montague R. James tells it in his weird story, Casting the Runes.
4: My name is Edward Dunning. I'm a scientist. I'm used to dealing with facts, not fairy tales. I'm regarded as Britain's leading authority on medieval life. And as such, I've studied much of the ancient fears and barbaric superstitions of those times. I should have been the first to scoff at any suggestion that the ancient powers of evil, the black magic of Teutonic days, could be believed and practiced in the 20th century. A few weeks ago, I should have laughed had you told me that a curse, a hex, could kill a man. Today, I cannot laugh. It has happened to a man I know of. And now, it's happening to me. My first presentment of danger came on that day a few weeks ago when I dropped in to see Alfred Smythe secretary of the National Science Association, and found him in a state of irritation.
5: Lost it all, Donning, I almost wish you hadn't been so brutally honest in your report on that Carswell paper. Why? What's the trouble? Oh, he's such a frightful fellow. He's raising a terrible row. You mean Carswell himself? Yes, it's bad enough a vicious charlatan like that calling himself a scientist. But now he's taking all his vindictiveness out on me. (laughs)
4: Sorry, old chap, it's really me he'd like to get at.
5: As a matter of fact, that's just what his last letter was about. He wants to know what supposed authority wrote the report rejecting his paper.
4: You didn't give him my name. Heavens, no.
5: As a matter of fact, Dunning, I haven't and I won't, and for a very special reason. Call it silly, call it crazy, call it what you will. I have an uncanny feeling about that man, Carswell. Hmm? Why? Do you know anything about
4: him? Nothing. I've never seen him. I only know that he wrote a paper called The Truth of Alchemy. It was hopeless. Precisely. And why was it hopeless? Well, besides being abominably written, it was supposed to prove that alchemy, black magic and such rot actually exists. I think the man really believes it. Undoubtedly, he does. And that's what I mean.
5: He lives in an isolated old house in Warwickshire. He's rarely seen elsewhere. And in his whole career, he's written only two things. This paper and A History of Witchcraft, published ten years ago. Yes, of course. I remember now. So that's the man. Yes, and that book was even worse than this paper. The man has a warped mind. I'm sure he's tried every unhealthy experiment in alchemy, witchcraft, and black magic. There's no telling to what lengths of vindictiveness a man like that might
4: go. Well, it does sound a bit queer, but... Geez. Not queer, Dunning. Evil. Oh, come. man has a right to believe what he likes. He has a right to be angry with me. Yet I've glibly scoffed at the man's life's work.
5: Well, well, perhaps I'm being overly suspicious and imaginative, but I think there's more than anger involved here, Edward. Hmm? This may sound fantastic to you, but, well, John Harrington wrote the report condemning that witchcraft book of Carswell's ten years ago. Three months later, Harrington was dead.
4: Hmm. But, Alfred, what's the connection?
5: Harrington died under very peculiar circumstances. He was walking home alone late one night, and suddenly he screamed, broke into a run, lost his hat and stick, and climbed up a tree. A dead branch gave way. He fell and broke his neck. No one's ever been able to explain why it happened.
4: Come now, Albert. Jolly, you're not suggesting... this oh, I don't this... know what I'm suggesting.
5: I only know that after he reviewed Carswell's book, John Harrington didn't have a moment's peace. Now you've written an unfavorable review of his, this paper. If I were you, I should keep that fact well
7: hidden. (laughs)
5: Oh, Alfred. Well, that's
4: ridiculous. (laughs) Yes, I laughed at Alfred Smythe's fears. How could I have known then that I was to feel the same terror, the same agonized fear, which gripped the heart of John Harrington as he crouched panting... On the branch of a tree, for another moment or two of life, while beneath him the thing came closer and closer. I'd almost forgotten the incident when, a few nights later, I was riding home on a late train. I was half drowsing in my seat, barely keeping awake by looking idly at the car card at The man directly opposite me must have been doing the same, because suddenly I heard him say,
3: Yeah, now, what can that one be advertising?
4: I followed his eyes to the window beside my head. What I saw brought me bolt upright in my seat.
6: In memory of John Arrington, died September 18th, 1937, by falling from a tree, three months
4: were allowed. Mommy, what do you say that means, sir? Well, I... I don't know. But I did know. Smythe had been right. The affair with Carswell was not over, but only begun. I asked the conductor about the card, but he was as puzzled as I was. He had never seen it before. The card must have been put there expressly for me. That meant that Carswell knew it was I who had reviewed his paper. How had he found out? I got the answer the next day. I was in the Select Manuscript Department of the British Museum doing some research in the quiet, almost deserted room. I'd been working steadily for an hour, oblivious to my surroundings, when suddenly, just at my shoulder, I heard a voice. Edward Dunning,
5: you are allowed three
4: months. I swung around at my seat. There was no one within 20 feet of me. I sat for a moment, shaken, and then I stooped to pick up the papers I had brushed to the floor. I straightened up, to find a stout elderly gentleman standing in front of me.
3: Excuse me, sir. Uh, Yes? May I give you this paper? I think it should be yours.
4: Oh, yes, so it is. I thought I had them all. This one seemed to have slide across the floor. Thank you very much. Not at all, sir.
5: Good afternoon.
4: He walked slowly away and out of the door. A kindly stout old gentleman. But there was something about him that made me feel strange. I went over to the attendant.
5: Uh, yes, Mr. Dunning? Uh, did you
4: notice that gentleman I was just speaking to? Oh, yes, of course. Uh, can you tell me his name? Why, that's Mr. Carswell. As a matter of fact, he was asking about you only
5: the other day. Asking about me? Well, he asked who were the great authorities on medieval science. And Of course, I told him you were the only one in the country. Oh, I see. Uh, Would you like to meet him, Mr. Dunning? I'll see if I Uh, can... uh, No.
4: No, thank you. It was as simple as that. Now Carswell knew. What would be his next move? What was I to expect? I reached home at dusk. And trouble stood on my doorstep in the long face and stooped form of my family doctor.
2: I've had to upset your household arrangements, I'm sorry to say, Dunning. I've had to send both your servants to hospital. But what happened? Uh, Something like termine poisoning, I should think. It's nothing serious. Well,
4: what could have caused it?
2: Well, that's the rather odd thing. They tell me they bought some shellfish from a hawker and had it for lunch. I've made inquiries, but I can't find that a hawker called at any other house on this street.
4: Was this the next move? If so, it had succeeded. I was alone in the house, and my nervousness increased as darkness closed in, and the hours advanced toward midnight. I went to bed, but almost immediately I thought I heard something my study door opening downstairs. I went out and leaned over the banister. There was nothing moving, nothing visible. There was only a sudden, surprising gust of warm air playing about my legs. I went back into my room and locked the door. Suddenly, the lights went out. No doubt, it was only a blown fuse. But the chills were playing up and down my spine. I went over to the bed and reached for my watch under the pillow. I suppose I wanted to find out the time. I don't know why. But fumbling on the pillow, my hand touched something far different from a watch. It was like a mouth with sharp teeth and hair around it. Not human at all. I fled from my bedroom and spent a long and miserable night locked in a spare room, my ear to the door. But nothing came. I was not disturbed again. In the morning, I searched the house and found nothing unusual. But the mark of fear must have been stamped on my face, for Smythe noticed it next day.
5: Darling, you look as if you hadn't slept for weeks. Is anything wrong?
4: I... I don't know, Alfred. I... uh, Yes, there is. Carswell knows. How? They told him at the museum. Of
5: course we should have thought of that. Has anything happened yet?
4: I don't know. It's too fantastic. It's probably my mind, hypnotic suggestion or something. But like that man Harrington, I have three months left. Edward. must have been hearing things. I'm all on edge. I don't know what to think.
5: John Harrington had a brother, Henry. Perhaps I'd better get you in touch with him. He might know more about this man,
4: Carswell. Yes, yes, do it. And quickly. Three months is not a lot of time. It was arranged. That night, I found myself walking down the dark street that led from the railway station to the Harrington home. It must have been along this same street that John Harrington had walked that last night, where he had broke and run. It must have been one of these trees bordering the lonely road in which he had spent his last horrible moments. The way was dark, and there was no living soul in sight. And suddenly, complete terror gripped me. Somehow I knew that I was being followed. At first I only felt it, and then I heard it. I walked steadily on for a moment, my stomach like ice. It was getting louder, coming closer. Unconsciously, my step quickened. I could barely control myself. I wanted to scream and run. The thing came closer closer. Dad! Ah! I broke and ran, ran madly for my life. I was at a little side street. I turned down the doubling back toward the railway station. I thought I would never make it. But finally, bright lights loomed before my eyes, and I think that I never have been so grateful for human companionship.
5: There's no need to run, sir. The 8:40 40 won't be along for another five minutes.
4: I felt very foolish. I couldn't bring myself to walk back down that street to Harrington's. I could only take the train home furtively and call Harrington next morning to beg his forgiveness. He seemed very understanding and asked no questions. Undoubtedly, Smythe had told him something about me. At any rate, he agreed to visit me at a place two nights later. And when he arrived and was made welcome, he began to talk about his brother.
2: Yes, Mr. Dunning. John was in a very bad state for weeks before the accident. Uh, If that's what it was... The principal thing seemed to be the notion that he was being followed. It became an obsession.
4: Yes, I know. I don't think his death was an accident. Then perhaps you can explain it? No. But I have one clue. Your brother reviewed a book very severely not long before he died. Uh, Just lately, I happened to cross the path of the man who wrote that book.
2: And his name, of course, is Carswell. That's right. As far as I'm concerned, that does it. Before he died, John was beginning to feel, much against his will, that Carswell was at the bottom of his trouble. Why? Well, it doesn't make sense. None of this does, but but tell me. My brother liked music. He went to all the concerts in town, and he made a hobby of collecting the programs. One night, about three months before his death, he brought one home and showed it to me. I nearly missed this one, he said. It seems he'd lost his and was hunting for it under his seat and a neighbor, a rather stout elderly gentleman, offered to give John his. The kind gentleman was Mr. Coswell. Undoubtedly. I started to lead through the program and noticed on the second page some rather curious letters, carefully written there in black and red ink. Neither of us could make much of it, except that the letters seemed to be runic.
4: Runes. Runes, of course.
2: Well, John thought it might be important, and debated whether he shouldn't try to return the program to the stout gentleman. But just then the door blew open and a gust of air, of strangely warm air, blew into the room. In a flash, it took the broom and blew it straight into the fire.
4: Yes, your brother was right. He should have returned it.
2: Well, there was nothing to be done then. perhaps not.
4: But do you know what runic letters mean?
2: Well, they're old pre-Druid script, I believe. The kind of writing the barbaric tribes used long before the Romans invaded Britain. Yes, that's right.
4: Casting the runes, they used to call it in the old days. Casting the runes. Uh, What do you mean? Well, it was a curse, a a hex. In primitive England, people thought by casting the runes, that is, handing a person a piece of paper with certain runic letters on it, that uh, you could put that person out of the way, destroy him. It's an old superstition. And the only way to lift the curse was to return the paper to the one who gave it to you. To give it back
2: without his knowing it. I don't believe that kind of nonsense. (laughs) Neither do I. Then what was it that killed John? I don't know.
4: Perhaps his fear of the runes, perhaps brooding about it, becoming neurotic, thinking he saw things and heard things and touched things that weren't there. Perhaps his own mind drove him to death.
2: And what's the difference once you're dead? No difference at all. Casting the runes. Oh, it's rubbish.
4: Yes, of course, but... Good heavens. What is it? I just remembered that day at the British Museum. He cast the runes on me. I went swiftly to the writing table, Harrington close behind me. My portfolio was there, full of the scribbled notes I'd been working on that day in the museum. And as I took it from my shaking hands and began leaping desperately through them... One strip of thin, light paper slipped and fluttered toward the open window with uncanny quickness. But Harrington was even quicker and slammed the window
2: shut just in time. Got it? Oh, thank heavens. If it were lost or destroyed, like your brothers. Then you wouldn't be able to return it to Mr. Carswell. Yes. Look at it. It's identical with the one John got.
4: I looked at the flimsy paper. The characters, carefully traced in red and black, were runes, all right that ancient language used by the Aborigines of prehistoric Britain. I couldn't decipher them. But as Harrington and I stood looking into each other's eyes, each of us could read the other's thoughts. Science or not, 20th century or not, this sheet of foolscap spells death for its possessor.
2: It spells death
4: for you. It must be returned. Yes, I know. It must go back in such a way that it doesn't... that he doesn't know he's received it. That means...
2: We can't simply mail it. No, we can't. We must do it personally. That'll take doing. Well, he knows you by sight, doesn't he? Yes. You must shave your beard. It'll alter your appearance. He might strike any time. I have three months, as with the warning said. We've got to make good on Miss Dunning. I've searched ten years for my brother's murderer, and now he must not escape. I dare not go
4: near Carswell, so Harrington volunteered to keep a watch on him, to let me know when our chance came to return the rooms, if it was ever to come. It was only a night or two after Harrington was there that I arrived home and found the calendar had come in the mail. When I examined it, I found everything after November 19th had been torn out. The next night, I had another envelope of the mail, This time, it was a woodcut, an illustration torn out of a book, showing a dark, moonlit road and a man walking on it. And right behind him came a huge, dark shape, some awful demon creature. Under it were written some lines from the ancient Mariner. And as I sat alone and read them aloud, I felt that now familiar gust of warm air playing about my legs. The man walks on and turns no more his head because he knows a frightful fiend doth close behind him tread. Now I knew the face of my terror, and it was with me always. Walking down the dark street at night, I heard its footsteps behind me. In my lonely house at midnight, at Rome, the halls. Like the ancient mariner and John Harrington, I never turned to look. I couldn't. My nerves were going, and I could do nothing but wait. The days, the weeks slipped by, and still Harrington had no plan. I checked off the days on the calendar Carswell had sent. Now there were eight days remaining, then six, then three, two, one... It was the evening of the 18th. My last day on Earth was to begin at midnight. I was sitting alone in my living room, bathed in perspiration, fighting to keep my nerves in check. Suddenly, I felt that warm gust of air. I listened. There were soft footsteps. A shadow seemed to cross the hall door. And then the footsteps blended into a loud banging.
6: No, no, not yet. I've still got one day more. Not yet. Don't... Ah!
2: It's, it's me. Ah. Oh, thank heaven. Harry. What's the matter, man? What is it? It was you. you were knocking on the door. Your footsteps. Yes, of course. Oh, thank heaven. I, I thought I, I. Look, man, you've got to pull yourself together. It's tonight we have our chance. What chance? Carswell leaves Victoria Station by boat train tonight at 10. I'll get on with him there. You take the car I brought and drive to Croydon. Get on the train there. And be sure to bring the paper. Yes. Yes, I have it. You've shaved already. Good. Everything depends on his not recognizing you. Mr. Harrington. Suppose he changes his mind. Suppose he doesn't take that trip. My time runs out tomorrow. He'll be there, and you'll do it. You'll do it well. You've got to.
4: I stood on the platform of in my mind in a daze. I thought the train would never come, but it did. I saw Harrington at the window. He stared coolly at me. Of course, there was to be no sign of recognition. I entered the coach and slowly made my way down the aisle to the compartment where Harrington sat. Opposite him, staring full into my face, was Carswell. He looked up as I sat down. His eyes were heavy-lidded, his face bland. It was impossible to tell whether he knew. The train started. The next stop was Dover at the end of the line. My last chance. It was time to cast the rules. It was a strange ride. Coswell and I, seated face to face, staring into each other's eyes. Harrington off to the side, pulling at his face with twitching fingers. If I could have only had a few whispered moments with him to plan our strategy, but that was impossible. Moments dragged tortuously. No one moved. Then suddenly, Caswell leaned forward. I beg your pardon, sir. Haven't we met, uh, Matt? Well, I don't think so, sir. Not unless you're in the plumbing business. Plumbing? No, hardly. I hadn't planned it that way. The words, the accent, just seemed to come by themselves. And Carswell sat back, an enigmatic expression on his face. I wished desperately to know what he was thinking. Then suddenly he got up and went out into the corridor. Was this my chance? I was about to slip over to his bags to see if there were a way to secrete the rooms within them. When I caught Harrington's eye and read a warning in them. Carswell from the corridor was watching, waiting to see if we recognized each other. I muttered a prayer of thanks I so hadn't ruled. Carswell came back and took his seat. As he did so, wild, exultant hope surged up in my throat, for something slipped off his seat and dropped noiselessly to the floor. It was his ticket case, and he didn't see it. It was a small cardboard ticket case with a pocket on the cover. If I could just get to it and slip that tiny piece of paper into that pocket. For 15 agonizing minutes, I sat there and stared at it. If only Coswell would go out. But he sat stolidly staring straight ahead. We were coming into the outskirts of Dover, the train slowing down. Suddenly, Harrington stood up, reached up to the rack above Coswell to get his coat and bag. I stared at him blankly for a moment, surprised by his sudden clumsiness. And then I realized what he was up to. The bag, the coat, the briefcase—all came tumbling down upon Coswell. What the devil? Oh, I say, I'm sorry. I'm terribly sorry. You clumsy fool, you might have injured me. What were you trying to do? Well, it was my only chance. Coswell stood facing Hamilton. I reached down, got buy. the ticket case, That's and with right. trembling fingers slipped the paper into the yes, pocket. Of
7: I'm...
4: He turned sharply to me and I I'm extended good the good case toward him. Uh, excuse me, sir. Is this yours? Yes, it's my ticket case. Where'd you find it? Here on the floor. Must have dropped off when this. Yes, you... I'm much obliged to you, sir. Not at all. Not at all. He looked at me fiercely, his rage at Harrington still twisting his face into a devil's mask. Then he glanced briefly into the ticket case and put it into his pocket. The railway pier of Dover, Harrington and I followed a few steps behind Carswell. I felt like I might faint. Carswell went straight to the gangway of the boat, and there the purser Excuse stopped me, him. sir, does your friend have a ticket? My friend? What the devil do
3: you mean? I'm traveling alone. Well, that's funny. I could have sworn there was another gentleman right there beside you, walking just at your elbow. Well, there isn't. And I suggest you see an oculist. Oh, I, I
4: didn't see. I just felt. Sorry, sir. Must have been your rugs. My mistake
2: our job's
4: done. I didn't sleep that night. I lay awake and listened. But there were no footsteps, no warm gusts of air, nothing to disturb me. All day I felt remarkably free, although this was to have been my last day on earth. But, but only just now, when Harrington came in, could I really relax.
2: Well, oh, Deming, have you seen the afternoon paper yet? I know.
4: Not yet. Well,
2: here. Look at it. On the second page.
4: There. Abbeville, France. An English traveler examining the front of St. Wolfram's Cathedral today was struck on the head and killed instantly by a stone falling from the scaffolding. A note of mystery was added by the fact that although the cathedral was undergoing repairs, no workman was on the scaffolding at the time of the accident. The traveler was identified by papers found on him as a Mr. Carswell of Warwickshire.
1: Uh,
2: Of course, it could have been an accident.
4: Yes. Yes, it could have been.
1: And that was the excellent Casting the Runes from Escape, a show well worth checking out. And that is the show for this week. May I quickly just thank anyone who's become a patron recently? Very kind of you to have signed up to support the shows. If you'd like to become a patron, just listen on for instructions. And to anyone who's been in touch in the past week with nice messages, thank you. There seem to have been a lot of you in the past seven days, and I very much appreciate it. Always great to speak to you guys. Don't forget to throw a question into the question pot by going to attaboyclarence.com and scrolling down the homepage. And until we speak again, do take very good care of yourselves. And bye for now. If you'd like to support this show, you can do so by going to www attaboyclarence.com and clicking on the Patreon banner. Pledges start from as little as $1 a month, and in return you'll receive exclusive emails, bonus episodes, previews, and eBooks. and every dollar pledged goes towards making these shows better and more frequent. Go to www.attaboyclarence.com or click the link in the show notes now to become a patron. Thank you.